And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Shrine and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! And we're back in uh, the wilds of November, I guess, uh, which... Oh, God, don't even say that. We weren't even talking about that. It's like six weeks till Christmas. Like, ah! Oh, it is six weeks. You didn't have to... Okay. Oh, good heavens, yes. And not only that... It's like but six in... weeks to Christmas and four weeks to Worldcon. Nothing makes sense anymore. And here in the States, as of tonight... Uh, sunset will begin at 4.30 in the afternoon or something. So we're basically entering the liter- literally the winter doldrum, the era of darkness. Um, so, Just as we begin our segue to summer. Uh, we, yeah, you're beginning your segue to summer. And meanwhile, many of our friends seem to be having a wonderful time in Montreal at the World Fantasy Convention, uh, which will be, as you probably, as, as you suggested before we were uh, recording, Probably a fairly small world fantasy convention, and I—that's the impression I get. And I get the impression that probably the uh, uh, Worldcon in DC in December will be a fairly small one. Um, there's a local convention here in Chicago that, as of a couple of weeks ago, was worried about selling out its hotel block um, mm-hmm. and offering free memberships to anybody who get a hotel because they, you know, pay a penalty on that. So I think the era of full-scale conventions are. Uh, Close to being a year off, and as you and I have talked before, Chicago, yay, here at Chicago, next August might be the first full-scale convention we've seen since Dublin. I think that's a very realistic assumption. I mean, my recollection is that the Chicago Worldcon will take place in the first week of September. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was looking at travel plans just this week because it looks as though here in Western Australia, we may open our borders in February. Um, and if we do, then it will be practical to plan to travel. Though it will no doubt be 15-hour plane flights wearing masks, which I uh-huh. don't look forward to very much, though I accept the necessity without a question. Um, and I think there's a chance that everybody can come who wants to come. Uh, I really do. I think uh, this world fantasy, which looks like – I mean, it, it's very sad in a way because it looks like a wonderful venue. Mm-hmm. There's a small group of people who look like they're having quite a good time, and I'm very happy for them. But you know the, the 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 lifeblood of these events is whoever comes. You know, I mean, a nice venue is important. Practical organization is vital, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Good policies. But what really is important is that you get everybody there, so you can see your friends. So interesting people can do panels, etc., etc., etc. And I think, unfortunately, they're they're going to struggle with that, um, which is a which is a pity. And of course, Although, well, I mean, part, part, part of that issue is that they're probably for all major conventions will be a virtual component from now on, uh, which is yeah. not a bad thing. I've not enjoyed the virtual conventions I've been at nearly as much as I would have enjoyed being no. in, in, in person. However, I have friends who are disabled, friends who don't have money to travel, friends who could not attend a world fantasy or a world con if there were not a virtual one. And I think that democratization has to continue. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was aware of it when the FutureCon SF people launched their convention last year and when there was the New Zealand, uh, uh, the Con Zealand Fringe. Mm-hmm. Right? That struck me. The, the struck me as great developments. And I think it was also made clearer when we were talking to uh, Ogunachovwayak Pecky a couple of weeks ago that this does provide people from around the world who could not otherwise reasonably hope to travel to Worldcon mm-hmm. to actually be a part of it. So that's great. The problem for someone in a location like me is that typically, the, you know, sort of we're we're in a time zone that really doesn't fit with with any of the virtual events. Well, that's true. That yes. are run based on U.S. conventions either, right? So it's like I'm thinking about attending Worldcon virtually, and if I do, I'll probably have to make a decision to live slightly out of my own time zone in order to mm. be there because you know I I was talking to the Montreal people about attending virtually and doing a couple of panels and actually asked me if I would, but ultimately it was going to be four o'clock and five o'clock in the morning to do panels. And, you know, look, I love world fantasy and I would love to support the people at Montreal, but I don't want to do panels at four o'clock in the morning. No, I understand that entirely. And it's, 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 it's a compromise for, for anyone. But as I say, uh, there are, People. A good example is is Africa. We discovered in, in talking to uh, Pecky, for example, that it's about the same time differences here and in, in, in Central Europe. So a good chunk of the world is not going. You, oh, yeah. you just happen to live on Mars. You happen to live in a place which is not like anywhere else on Earth. Uh, and I 
still regret not having gotten a chance to go down there and, and at, at the New Zealand. Nevertheless, I think that the other thing this reminds me of is most of us uh, read science fiction and fantasy for years before even being aware that there were. Con- um, and sure. I remember the first the first couple of conventions. The first convention I went to was a local convention here in Chicago. Well, actually, that's not quite true. I went to academic convention. There was something. There is something called the Science Fiction Research Association, which had small. Uh, 100 to 200 people, maybe the largest one they ever had might have been 300. I'm not sure. And I'd go to those, and I, I met a lot of good friends there. That's where I met Brian Aldiss and Joe and Gay Haldeman and Darko Suvin and, uh, and, and even John Clute. Uh, but those are not the same thing as going to a, a, a con where you're there to be with friends. The first time I went That's to true. this local Windy Con, I dressed up in my academic garb because I thought this is what you do at a convention. You put on your Harris tweed jacket and your Liberty of London tie and you (laughs) walk into the dealer's room. And I was the only one dressed that way, of course. And within within 10 minutes of my walking into the dealer's room, somebody comes up to me and says, which doctor are you? I thought I missed the memo here. Yeah, well, I mean, fair enough. I mean, you know, it's it's a funny game, isn't it, really? It is. But the thing is, um, my, my, the point I was getting at was that realizing that there are conventions, we've got friends that we've talked to on the on, on the podcast who were well into their careers or, or at least well into their maturity before they knew they were conventions. And the yeah. sense of discovery of going to a con and realizing that there are all kinds of people there that you want to meet, people you didn't expect to meet, people you get introduced to, that thrill uh, becomes a little bit jaded when you go to con after con, year after year after year. You want to see your same friends. And I think that what this hiatus has has done for many of us is kind of restored the excitement of going to a con and, and, and seeing people again. I think it, that's the sense I get from I think some you, of the I, people in Montreal. Well, look, I think, yes, I think there's certainly an element of emerging from a cave with this year, with any convention that's on. And I'm sure there's a feeling, and I certainly get the sense that amongst those people who are attending the convention and having a good, you know, having a good time are, um, you know, people who just, they feel like they've just come out of a cave. It's like, here are people exactly. and it's, it's wonderful. And if there's a, that fear of missing out thing that you get when you're not at a convention, that's the sense. I mean, I know that our friends, Ellen Datlow, Ellen Clages, Ellen Kushner, all the Ellens mm-hmm. and a bunch of other people are there in, in Montreal and are having a great time. Now, one thing they're doing, Gary, is on my, on my Monday morning at, at 3 a.m., uh-huh. they're going to present the World Fantasy Awards. Now, we don't know anything about those other than the ballot. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, we do know, and this is a reason for mentioning it, we do know the Life Achievement recipients, who are Megan Lindholm and Howard Waldrop. Yes. Both of whom are worthy of our celebration, and Waldrop particularly, you know, who has had a very difficult time with health over the last few years, you know, is 75 years old. I'm really personally pleased and relieved and have said on the podcast before how happy I am that he's being nominated, and that I would encourage anybody out there to go out and start reading Waldrop if you have not. And even if you're familiar with Robin Hobb, I would recommend you go out and read Megan Lindholm's work. Yes. Because A Wizard of Pigeons is a very different kind of thing from the Farseer trilogy. And Megan Lindholm's short fiction, which is available in a collection, is very different again and well worth it. And, and this is why I segue in with this somewhat breathlessly, mm-hmm. I should slow down, actually. One, I don't know if I told you this, but I, I, some, a, one of our listeners thoughtfully wrote in to us and pointed out that when you and I are talking, I tend to talk too quickly. And it's harder to follow what I'm saying because I talk too quickly when we're talking. But when we have an interviewee or a, a, a friend with us, I tend to slow down. So I'm going to try to remember to slow down. But uh, this year... Sorry, yeah? No, I, I had... I had not noticed that at all, but you and I have been talking for 20 years or something, so I'm probably used to it. Um, I would think that's a fair, fair assessment, and I think it's very different uh, one-on-one than down a, a podcast channel. But this week, the Science Fiction Writers of America uh, began to presage what's happening next year for them, and they nominate, they announced the latest Damon Knight Life Grand Master. Genius, yes. SF Grandmaster, who is Mercedes Lackey. Mm-hmm. And I confess to have n- not read any Mercedes Lackey for a long time. Um, I think that's fair for me too. And and so I have, 
I mean, one of the questions that always comes up with these uh, are, are you look at the list of people who haven't gotten the award, people who should have gotten the award years ago. You mentioned Howard Waldrop is a good example. Um, or for that matter, Megan Lindholm has been around. I mean, if you think back Long historically, time. Wizard of the Pigeons is one of the defining texts of what came to be known as urban fantasy. Uh, so I, I don't have any uh, complaint about Mercedes Lackey, who's been enormously influential and enormously successful. And if you look at the number of writers, not even young writers anymore, who say they began their careers reading Mercedes Lackey novels. I guess she started out as, as I recall, with dark over fan fiction. She started out as, as, as one of the... Uh, I, I couldn't comment to that. I, I genuinely could not comment to that. But that sounds about right. And of course, and I'm not, I'm genuinely not trying to drag us down this path, but you then get into the who else would have, could have, should have been nominated or, or you know, be get a, you get a science fiction writer, uh, an SF grant mastership. Um, and I know that, for example, we've talked previously about a conversation I had with a friend of ours in the year that William Gibson was the recipient mm-hmm. and friends had had other thoughts about who was obviously a selection. And yeah. at that point I thought, well, William Gibson was one of the obvious selections. And I still think that there's at least one, there's one glaring blinking neon sign of an exception at this point, but that doesn't render uh, Mercedes Lackey any less of a worthy recipient. Well, I, don't, I, I think that's one of the mistakes we make. I mean, I've got a couple of uh, names in mind as well. I mean, I, I'll throw out one is John Crowley. Uh, I think one of the issues, though, uh, is not when somebody is named a grandmaster, it's not by default naming other people non-grandmasters. Uh, no. there's, there's always a concern that people get it at a young age when other people who theoretically may be on their last legs, we don't know, um, and the other thing which I've noticed when I get into conversations like this is that people frequently assume that people are being excluded and then discover later that that person had, in fact, won an award a long time ago. Yes, Peter well, Beagle well, is an old man now, but he won one several years ago. Uh, well, well, yes. But the other thing I think you have to say, say when it comes down to this, because, well, particularly for something like the SFWA Grandmaster, mm-hmm. which is, I believe, I believe picked by the SFWA president. Mm. That's my, my recollection. And if I'm wrong, I apologize, but it's just one of those things. There's no shortlist announced, which is fine. No, there shouldn't but be. But you don't know who else is in cons- being considered. And so when you hear one name come up, it is in the context, I'm sure, of a lengthy discussion. I don't think it's just like, well, I sat down and made a decision. You know, my favorite writer is XYZ. Right. XYZ gets to be an SF, SF, uh, SFWA Grandmaster. I think we're sure there's a lengthy conversation. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's lovely that, um, you know, Lackey, for example, is being recognized. And you're actually right. I, I looked it up, Gary, the Creature Podcast, not necessarily a font of fact, mm-hmm. but. Um, uh, Lackey's first sale was indeed to Friends of Darkover, and she wrote a number of stories for Marion Zimmer Bradley while Bradley was alive for her Swords and Sorceress anthologies and got her start there before moving on to what can only be described as a very popular and very prolific career. Well, one you know, of the I things want to I guess how many books he's written. Uh, yeah. How many books? I, I, I don't I know how many books. I know there are hundred. If you count books and stories together, four hundred. It's just a know. guess. I know there's ten. I know there's ten anthologies of short of of short stories related to her Voldemort universe mm-hmm. that she's ed- edited by other hands. Never mind, you know, the stories she's written herself, etc. So, I mean, prolific, influential. You know, I will. I, I have a name, and we don't. Again, necessarily have to go down in this oh. sort of uh, path at this point. But I would say that, that I have a name, and that the fact that that person is not a, a civil grandmaster at this point continues to surprise well, me. I can, yeah, I can then, think of three or four other names as well, and they they come up always on, on on Twitter feeds and on Facebook posts when this sort of thing comes up. One thing I do think historically has uh, been an issue among some older. Uh, advocates or fans, is that for a long time, uh, at the beginning of the Damon Knight Grandmaster Award, clearly skewed towards science fiction writers. And I think if you go back yeah. and look at the early awards, most of them went to people who wrote, if not primarily, at least a lot of science. And during that period, fantasy writers arguably were less likely. To, um, and and now I think one of the things that, uh, that Lackey's recognizing, the, the, the recognition of Lackey may presage is that, yes, fantasy is as much Part as much 
as much a part of the SFWA now, if not even more than half, as, as science fiction. So some of the complaints you get about this are complaints about, well, we shouldn't be giving these things to fantasy writers. This was a science fiction award. That is an antiquated point of view these days. And for that matter, even making a distinction between science fiction and fantasy is pretty problematical these days. Well, it is. But also, like, if you look at a, at a list of grand masters, right, uh, for, say, for all 36 of them, mm-hmm. it's not that early in the day, actually, that fantasy writers start showing up. Really? Or at least, let, let's say, very soft, very soft science fiction writers. I mean, for a start, even though they wrote science fiction, Sprague de Camp, Fritz Leiber, Andre Norton, Ray Bradbury, are all in the fir- are in the first dozen yeah. awards, and all were equally, or if not more, influential as fantasy writers than as science fiction writers. And that, I mean, prob- I mean, I don't know who you'd call the first true pure fantasy writer. Even Michael Moorcock in two thousand and eight wrote yeah. science fiction as well. But you'd have, I would say, it was more influential as a fantasy writer slash literary writer slash editor than as a science fiction writer. I think that's true, and I but, and, and but, so on, you know. But the names you mentioned were like legendary figures in the science fiction community, which was a much tighter and frankly, more exclusive community back there than it has been since. Yeah, and I, I think the other thing which is hard to get your head around sometimes when you are adding new names to the list of SFWA Grand Masters or World Fantasy Life Achievement recipients or whatever the, the equivalent might be, is that the the names generally who f- you find at the beginnings of those lists tend to be foundational people who have been around for a very, very, very long time, who have long careers. I mean, right. the first... SFWA Grandmaster, unsurprisingly, was Robert Heinlein. Yeah. Uh, Heinlein's career starts in, was it 1939 or something? 39. And that's 1975 when, you know, he gets the life achievement or the Civil Grandmastership, and it's now 2020, so it's been nearly 50 years since he received that. Um, so, of course, that sounds unassailable. You roll up to the last three or four names, as great as they are, and they're genuinely great. But I mean, you look at Nala Hopkinson, Lois Bujold, Bill Gibson, Peter Beagle, Jane Yolen. There's, you know, they're still writing. They're still part of the field. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not contestable, in my opinion. But nonetheless, they don't feel as they're not as much like Mount Rushmore, you know. No, that, that, that's as, exactly as, what I mean. You 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 are out of the kind of legendary founding fathers or founding mothers kind of thing. I just, I assume Andre Norton got. I'm going to take a wild guess and say that Andre Norton may have been the first woman to get a grand master. Is that? Can you look that up? Norton was indeed. She, ah. uh, she was the sixth recipient. Okay. Of the of the or, or sixth person to be a, you know, a, a recognized as a grand master. Well, uh, interest. Well, interestingly, preceding Arthur Clarke and Ray Bradbury. That's interesting. And I, I, I have a th- I have a theory as to why that is, which is completely uncheckable. So I can. Andre Norton probably influenced more kids into reading science fiction sure. and fantasy than almost any other writer of that era. And even though today you mentioned her influence today, to, to the extent that it is, is still visible, probably came from the Witch World novels. But I grew up reading, uh, you know, as, a, as an eight-year-old, Andre Norton science fiction novels like Starman's Son and so forth and so on. So I think you get a generation who recognize, okay, uh, I'm too young to have grown up on Heinlein juveniles, but I grew up on Andre Norton juveniles only a decade later. What, what's interesting to me, and I think you're right, I think you're completely right. Um, what's interesting to me is, first of all, back in the day, they didn't recognize, add, you know, rec- recognize someone as a grandmaster every year. Right. So even though Heinlein was um, awarded, given the award in 75, it took till 1997 to get to the 15th uh, recipient oh, of, of the life of the grandmastership. But these days it is every year, mm. which gives it a definite fit feel as well. But I mean, here, let me ask you this, and this is a long segue from where we ever we're going to begin. <laughs> In 2020, 21, which of these 15 first names still feel like they would be admitted today? And I'll run you up from the beginning. Robert Heinlein. I know there's all kinds of issues, but I don't think even now people would suggest he shouldn't be a grandmaster, no. probably. Jack Williamson. Not convinced he would get recognized today. Um, Clifford Simak. Mm-hmm. Clifford, that's a good question. I mean, is he even read today? I mean, his stories are absolutely lovely. Williamson? Uh, he wrote right up until his death in oh, 2015 no. or something. Well, well, no, uh, um, maybe. I think I, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, um, then you've got 
Mm-hmm. Go, on, go ahead. No, I, I, I was thinking. Okay. You've got Clifford Simak, who was, who was wonderful, but I don't think is widely read today. No. Sprague de Camp, who I don't think would get admitted today, not because of just because of awareness and currency. I, I, I think Sprague de Camp has kind of faded a bit from view. I'm not sure a lot of people read Sprague de Camp anymore, but again, there's a there's the historical thing that he sort of uh, began a he began to popularize a certain kind of historical fantasy with less darkness fall for which as yeah. we talked about this before people who may not have read that or may not have read some of his uh, sword and yeah. sorcery things probably have read people who were influenced by Sprague de Camp. Yeah. so it's one of those okay. echoes so I, I don't know that Williamson Simak or de Camp would be firmly in people's minds today. I think the next nominees would be, I think Fritz Leiber would get in still. Yeah. I think Andre Norton definitely, definitely would. I think Arthur Clarke would. I think Isaac Asimov would. And the first one, the next one that becomes a possibly like a weak yes Uh is Alfred Bester. Somebody who, on one hand, undeniably belongs, uh, I'm not querying that that Mm. he's worthy of a grandmastership, but I don't know necessarily whether the Stars My Destination and the other books are as widely read as they once were, or as, you know, yeah, in, in, in currency, maybe somewhat, but not as much. They aren't. I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. Although, again, okay. uh, the, 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 he's one of the authors who um, influenced authors who influence other people. For example, we talked uh, back when I was doing the uh, Library of America 1950s thing, somebody said, let's pay writers to write essays for uh, a website that goes with it. And, and, and Bill Gibson wrote the essay on The Stars My Destination. Uh, you can see echoes of Bester in everybody from Ellison to uh, Neil Stevenson to certainly William Gibson. And so, yep. he's an, again, he's, he's one of those writers I come to think of as echoes. Maybe people don't read him, but they certainly read people who did read him. I think that's true. Okay, I'll just quickly go through. Go uh, I think uh, the, uh, Ray Bradbury would definitely get in. Yeah. Les Del Rey, who was uh, uh, inducted in 1991, I'm not convinced would be thought of necessarily. Um, as a writer, probably Which doesn't mean he, doesn't mean doesn't mean he's not worthy, and doesn't mean I'm questioning that he is. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that he would be thought of. Well, it, it, it also think... raises the question of to what extent Grandmaster simply refers to the fiction written by somebody as opposed to their contribu- contributions to the field as an editor or an influencer or an organizer, for example. I think that it's supposed to be as a writer, but I could be wrong. Well, I mean, my okay. point is it's named after Damon Knight. And no, let's be honest, except for one Twilight Zone episode, very few people read Damon Knight anymore. But he's still one well, of the foundational figures of the field. Stop leaping forward, Gary. Okay, okay, okay. We've only, we've only, we've only got four right, people. Right. Four people left to go in our top fifth in the first fifteen. Okay, let's keep going. There is Frederick Pohl, who I believe would still get in. Mm-hmm. Though I think it'll be interesting to see how the next twenty years treat that. Mm-hmm. Then Damon Knight himself. At which point, I think they renamed the award a little bit, or maybe just after. Um, then A. Van Vogt. Not a hundred percent sure that he, he would make get it in. today. I mean, he might make it on the basis of people being vaguely aware that part of Alien was vaguely based on yeah. one of his vague stories. Uh, and then Jack Vance, who I think would absolutely get in. Yeah, I think he would. Actually, I will say, the way I'd maybe cast it now is perhaps if this is the sort of the grandmaster you know, life achievement thing where there's this hall where all the por- portraits hang, mm-hmm. I feel like some would hang in slightly dustier halls. I think that's true, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, if we were to go down... No, no, that's not. If we were to go to... Uh, well, if we were to go down a list of uh, Nobel Prize winners, we'd find a long list of people that most of us have never heard of. Uh, and those oh, of sure. us that have heard of them no, don't read them anymore at all. Uh, so, so to yeah. some extent, you expect that to change over time. You don't expect all these people to be constantly in print or, or, or constantly relevant. And some of the writers who are getting recognized in the last 10 years, I'm sure, are going to fade from memory just like uh, Sprague de Camp is more or less faded from most people's memory now. And look, I mean, it's equally true without going through it. I mean, if you look at the the first group of life, of, uh, life achievement recipients at the World Fantasies, uh-huh. I mean, very quickly, I'll just run through, I'll say, the first 15 were what? Robert Block, Fritz Leiber, Ray Bradbury, Frank Belknap-Long, George Louis Borges, Manly Wade-Wellman, C.L. Moore, Italo Calvino, Roald Dahl, Elspreg de Camp, Donald Wondre, 
E. Hoffman Price, Jack Vance, right? Uh-huh. Now, what I'd say in that is that perhaps it's important and that one of the roles of a life achievement thing is both to recognize that life achievement, mm. but also just kind of fix them in place as well. You know, like, uh, by the way, when you go back and look at things, a life achievement recipient that you've not read is someone who is worthy of your attention in 30 years. So it might be that if it's 2021, you want to go back 30 years to 2008, or to 1981. How can that be? Uh, now's a good time to go and read C.L. Moore in 30 years. C.L. Moore is not less good than C.L. Moore was as a writer. Mm-hmm. And C.L. So, Moore know, arguably has become uh, more, in some ways, more relevant than she was uh, 30 or 40 years ago. I think one of the things that you have to keep in mind with the World Fantasy Awards is there was there was a kind of double bias, uh, two almost opposite extremes. On the one hand, there was yeah. clearly a bias toward horror fiction or toward dark fiction rather than epic fantasy, and science fiction was always ex- The other bias yeah. was toward very literary writers, Calvino, Borges, um, and, uh, and, and, and as a result, you have some people like Borges who, it's good he's got a Life Achievement Award because he, I don't think, ever got a Nobel Prize. On the other hand, you have Donald Wandre. <laughs> Donald Wandre is pretty much not read by anybody anymore. I actually read a novel of his called The Web of Easter Island, very Lovecraftian. I think his recognition may have had something to do with the fact that he kept Lovecraft's name alive with co-founding Arkham House with, with August Darrell. I think that's true. Uh, oh, but, well, I mean, in, in fairness, the the CIFWA life, oh, sorry, the war fantasy life achievements are more overtly for broader things than yes. just writing. Where I where I believe it's my belief that the Grand Master is really a, a writing award. I think you're probably true, uh, and I, I think also that the one of the things that comes up, as you know, having been a, a juror, that uh, world fantasy life achievement awards are committee work. Uh, there are compromises, no. there are backs and forths, there are sure. arguments that. Uh, uh, that, that I found very, very fa- interesting when I was on, uh, on on the committee. And there's there's always a sense, uh, as, as I'm sure there was on, when you were a judge, that there are many people that ought to get it. And the question is, who needs to get it this year as opposed to next year? And yes. that's an impossible question to answer. It is. I mean, the worst question to ask, and I'm not going to pursue it other than stating the question is, who would you go back and take off the list and shifty somebody in from the same period if you could? Oh. That's an insidious question. Yes, I know. That, uh, yeah. that, that, that don't, we're not even going to go in that direction. And that, that's not even got, touching on the one or two names we might say now are asterisked, Gary. There's probably one or two names in the history of the field that are a bit asterisked, even mm-hmm. ones that are on the life achievement recipient list. Um, the, 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 the challenge for me as a devoted World Fantasy Award a nominator, right, and mm. uh, to some degree campaigner, is that my my campaign is done. For 10, 15 years, I've been saying Howard Waldrop needs to get a Life Achievement Award. Mm. Howard Waldrop has a Life Achievement Award. I don't know what to do next. Find another campaign. Or but, if, you but, want, if, you really, if you really want your Facebook to light up like fireworks, start coming up with a list of people to be excluded. Let's revise the past. <laughs> there was a... Look, that was, I was joking, joking. One of the most frightening jokes that I I had a colleague in in my university, actually not even at my university, um, who thought it would be a great idea to have what he called a tenure adjustment. As you know, in American (laughs) universities, at least you get tenure and you can't be fired. And he said, we're going to go around and look at everybody according to what they've been doing in the last couple of years, and we're going to adjust their tenure. You know, you may have been, <laughs> you, your tenure is now adjusted back to your third year, which means you have to start over again. And I thought, well, <laughs> we could do that with reputations. You could go back and adjust reputations, which is a sort of thing that does go on. It goes on in all kinds of mainstream fiction discussions. It goes on in science fiction and fantasy discussions. People have, we, we, we've, well, we didn't really have to revisit John W. Campbell because everybody who knew much about his editing knew what he was like. There's been some discussion I've seen in the last few months about uh, the Hugo Award. Yeah. We don't know that Gernsback was particularly sexist or racist, but we do know that he hated to pay authors anything at all, ever, and tried <laughs> to avoid it wherever he could. Um, so that's one thing. There, 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 are, there are reasons to exclude almost anybody you could find on the list. Uh, there are yeah. reasons to, if not exclude somebody, 
reevaluate them. And I'll give an example from mainstream fiction that is related to science fiction and fantasy. There's been a lot of reevaluation of Rudyard Kipling in the last 20 or 30 years because Kipling mm-hmm. was problematic, problematical in all sorts of ways, not least of which had to do with his ideas of empire. Um, not least of which had to do with his racist portrayals of some characters. On the other hand, he was a really good storyteller. And some of the stories that, uh, and and some of the stories that are problematical in some ways are still great stories in other ways. Um, So uh, there's nothing wrong with reconsidering author, Um, reconsidering them, recontextualizing authors is not the same thing as erasing them. no, no, and, nor is, 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 frankly, allowing them just to fade into the past. Right. Um, you know, well, and there are some writers, even grand masters or life achievement recipients, who are fading into the past. And there's one or two of those who I'm okay with them fading into the past, yeah, frankly. Uh, it's okay. Uh, it's I don't need to run a campaign against them, but I will say this before we move from this topic we never intended to discuss. Hmm. Although I said I wouldn't, I now will. I do have one name to put up for the Sifwa Grant Mastership. Now, I realize the only way for me to get a say in that would be to write fiction, join Sifwa, spend a period of time contributing to the organization, campaign, and become president. Mm. Okay, Seems unlikely, can... right? No. I think that's probably not going to happen. Let's go out on that limb. But I would suggest that sometime in the next few years, it really Kim Stanley Robinson should get the Sifwa Grant Mastership. I tend um, to do that. I, mean, I feel that that is a major oversight. Um, and he's also at one of the strongest parts of his career even now. Um, and I think one of the things that happens with somebody like Stan Robinson um, is, and, and it may even be this way with, with William Gibson, they are so present as writers. In other words, uh, the Ministry for the Future is still one of the most discussed books this year. It doesn't make any difference whether it got awards or not. It's being discussed even now by all kinds of people. And the same thing's true. When Gibson comes out with a new novel, it seems newer than other people's novels that came out that year. And you forget yeah. that these guys are not quite my age, but they're getting there. These, the, 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 yeah, these, I mean, Stan's not 70 yet, but he's nearly there. Yeah. Uh, so so, so I, th- I think you're absolutely right. That's uh, something that, that needs to be considered. On the other hand, and it tells you something. Sorry, uh, well, no, no, go ahead, finish your thought. I was just going to say it tells you something about the Ministry of the Future and the shadow that it casts. That it, I believe it's a twenty twenty book. Mm, it was, but it feels very, very fresh. Or is it a twenty nineteen book even? As January twenty twenty is my memory of it. You get you get up and go over to your bookcase and, and and check out the book while I keep entertaining our listeners with whatever patter I can no, think no. of. Hey, come on. All right. <laughs> I'm in this little tiny room. How far did I have to go, Gary? It's a 2020 title, so you're probably right. January 2020. Okay, yeah. And it feels 10 minutes old. Yeah, exactly. So, But anyway, that that's that. What else has been happening? In, I'm sorry, do, do you wish to nominate a, 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 a possible person for life achievement? or The reason, the reason I don't do this off the top of my head is because I don't <laughs> have a list in front of me. Um, I know, I know. I'm going to always – this came up. I, I embarrassed myself when I was a judge by saying – why don't we give it to, let's say, Jane Yolen? And they said, because she got it two years ago. And I said, oh, yes, of course. Um, Do you know what the hardest thing about this is? I don't know that the CIF Grant Mastership is limited to writers who have written in North America or not, but I think it probably is. The World Fantasy with Life Achievement is a harder task because it's everybody. Yeah. You know? And so I have wondered if you were being fully aware of everything written everywhere. During, say, the, just the period of these awards, which appeared to be, be basically limited to 20th century and 21st century fiction by writers who were alive or who were alive during the 20th century uh, and presented from the period of, say, 1970 onwards, roughly. Well, the other issue who from uh, Who from Europe, who from Asia, who from exactly was gonna Africa, say, who from South America would be re- you know, justifiable I mean, uh, nominees. I mean, uh, world fantasy puts itself out there by recognizing Borges. Right. So then you go, they don't recognize Marquez or anybody else from uh, South America, to my knowledge. But uh, I think they recognize Calvino. They recognize Calvino. Uh, um, uh, but nobody else from Europe, I don't think. So, you know, and that doesn't get into others. It, and and ob- obviously the, the population of both of these groups is overwhelmingly, but not exclusively white. Mm. And so there could be 
a lot better and a lot more thoughtful representation. I don't know who, and I literally don't know well enough who from, you know, you know who from uh, India say might mm. be a, 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 a worthy recipient, you know, and it would be fascinating to know. Well, I mean, part of the problem there is is simply access to work, and this is one of the things I've noticed in the last couple of years when I looked at the the second Golang's book of South Asian science fiction, for example, and I'll read the biographical notes, and there are certainly names in, 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 in these books that, that we recognize, most of them not necessarily older writers, Vandana Singh or Usman Malik and so forth and so on, but I'll read the little notes about a writer I've never heard of, and this happens with Korean science fiction and Chinese science fiction and South Asian science fiction and African science fiction, and I find that this person has been publishing stories for 20 years, most of them have not made it to the West. Most of them have not been available in, in venues that would make their names familiar <laughs> to most of us. And I find myself thinking, where are these stories? I mean, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's wonderful that's, that we're now getting more translated fiction. We're getting a lot of fiction, uh, which isn't even translated, fiction that is written in English in South Asia, for example, or Africa. But... There's no way of making up all the fiction that was lost over the last 20 years because it simply never made it to Anglo-American Australian readership. And those readerships, like it or not, are the ones that essentially determine who these award winners are. Well, I think 100%, 100% of the recipients of the uh, Sifra Grandmaster Award were British or American. Yeah. Right. And so that's a question. You know, you, I don't know who else is eligible, but I'm going to put a name up there that in the next 10 years, if we're... If we get to the twentieth anniversary of this mm. podcast, Gary, Sishin uh, Lu would strike me as being a very, very solid possibility. Mm -hmm. And we've you seen know? we've seen three novels. We've seen a very influential movie based on one of his stories. We've seen a number of stories now. So there's enough out there. And but the only reason Sishin Lu's name comes up is because those have been available in English to Anglo American readers. Yeah, um, yeah. And, 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 and I, I don't think you can blame uh, the president of, of Sefwa or oh, no. the judges of no. world fantasy for not being able to, for not being aware of books that are simply not made available to them. And hopefully I've also made it clear that I don't know enough about the rules surrounding who, whom is eligible. I don't know if it is genuinely limited to members of Sifwa. You know, it could be. I don't know that either way. And I probably should do some research rather than just shooting off my mouth here on the podcast. Well, one of the one since since you have the screen in front of you, because one of the uglier aspects I gather of Sufwa history is a writer who clearly was a grandmaster and I don't think ever got one, and that was Stanislaw Lim. Why is that an uglier part of Because he, he, says, he, was he, says he was expelled from Sifwa, wasn't he? I don't know. Was he? I don't know. I believe he was kicked well, out what? of Sifwa because he made uh oh, I don't know, he made anti- American remarks or anti-Sifwa remarks. There, there, there was a big scandal about it at the time, and authors had to take both sides. If you look up the limbs, you're, 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 you're doing something on your screen now. No, could... what I'm doing is I'm, I'm just looking to see if there's any clarification on the rules. And the only statement I oh. see about the, the, the eligibility for the Grand Master is one must have, have a lifetime achievement in science fiction and or fantasy. And if that's true, if that's the, the sole thing, then but whilst Lackey is undeniably worthy, and I've got oh, no. no qualms about that, then there's still a broader population who are, who are not being recognized. And I'm sure that's partly because of all kinds of reasons that I can imagine don't want to go into. But it's interesting that you know, the, the, the list of grandmasters is becoming more inclusive as time goes on, which is very welcome, and recognize other people. So hopefully that, I would imagine that would be a trend that would continue. Anyway, before we get ourselves in even more trouble, I'm sure the people yeah. at SIFW, when they Just, hear uh, about this there's, podcast there's, episode, yeah, will be I'm, delighted. He was ousted from the SFWA, and we'll have to, I'll have to look it up. And um, Okay. I don't know about this event. I don't recall it. It happened back in the anyway, 70s so, or something. Go ahead. Apart from, apart from making every you know, all of the uh, officers of SFWA unhappy that we were, were talking about their award, <laughs> which was really not my intention. I don't think we're going to touch on this at all, really. No, we're not, um, we're not complaining about this year's choice or last year's choice. Oh, no, no, not at all. Um, or any of the choices. Or any really. of the choices. Please. Uh, I mean, there is that question, as I say, whether you would choose them now, given the passage of time. Well, that's fair enough. Um, and it's always great to see a broader group of people being included. That's yeah. fair enough. And then I don't know enough to say anymore, and there's a few people we could talk about. But anyway, moving along. Before we got started, you were going to talk about, you've been watching things, Gary. I've been watching things. Well, I, I started watching, it's, it's, it's two contrasting things. Uh, one is I started watching Foundation, 
Uh, and mm -hmm. it looks wonderful. It's beautiful. Uh, it has some good performances in it. It has characters in it, which, except for the names, I don't recognize at all from, from Asimov. And suddenly I've drifted away from it because everything that Asimov wanted to happen, I know it's going to happen. And all the dramatic stuff is veering more and more towards Star Wars, uh, I think. I, th I think they're trying to commodify Asimov in a way that he really can't be commodified. Um, and so it, it, may be, it may be fine. It's been renewed for a second season. I don't think it's going to go on for eight years. Um, and I don't think anybody has a right to expect Asimov's book of discussions, which is all it is. It's like 14 stories of discussions until he finally gets to his sort of 70s and 80s rebuild. Um, so that is fine. That's my, 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 my reaction to Foundation right now is it looks great and it's fine. And I saw Dune in the theater, which, uh, interestingly enough, is better than fine. It's really uh, a very well-made movie. And I, to some extent, uh, it follows the novel more than I expected it to. And that's kind of a problem. I, interestingly enough, a couple of nights ago, I watched the first half hour or so of the old David Lynch, Dune, which also, at the first half hour or so, very much is in keeping with, uh, with Frank Herbert's novel. The thing that... Uh, didn't seem of interest to David Lynch uh, were Herbert's ecological themes, which were very important to Herbert at the time. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I think that is emphasized uh, in the Denis Villeneuve uh, version of, of Dune much more than it was in the original. Um, there are is, people who have problems it with it, I gather, mm -hmm. um, and people who loved it. So, I mean, there, there, there's, there are a lot of... I had, I had some problems with this with almost every movie I watch that this is, yeah. I think, an unfortunate choice at this particular point in a movie to do this. It's not disastrous. It doesn't derail the whole movie. Uh, but there are things that I wish they hadn't done the way they did because it wasn't necessary. But by and large, okay. Dune, somebody uh, tweeted today that one of the things that Dune does is recapture a sense of wonder from reading mm -hmm. science fiction. And that's an interesting question because I think it, I think it does do that. Um, but I think that that's no longer a principal aesthetic in science fiction literature or movies. Oh, okay. I don't think that necessarily the sense of wonder as I would have thought of it back in the 70s and 80s mm -hmm. is a core part of the literary science fiction that I read. I think it's still an essential part of a lot of the science fiction I see on the screen. Yeah. I mean, there are large elements of sense of wonder in Foundation. I've seen the first two episodes and haven't returned to it yet, though mm. I plan to. I, but same it's here. certainly a, founda a, a basis for the visual appeal of Star Wars and Star Trek. It's part of the key appeal even of something like The Expanse, which has a lot of visual evocation of sense of wonder in it. You know, mm -hmm. we live in this era of astonishing special effects where the default on everything is that it looks pretty amazing. Yeah, you know, right. you've been. I mean, one of. I, mean, I honestly believe, by the way, as an aside, I mean, you were saying the foundation has been renewed for a second season. I suspect it's been renewed for a second season for the same reason that Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time and the Amazon uh, Lord of the Rings series have both been uh, renewed for second seasons pro before release, mm. and it's because I've invested so much money in the setup of these these franchises that to have any chance of extracting that money, they need to make more than just a season of it. You know, I mean, the budget widely declared for uh, Lord of the Rings is about half a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. But an awful lot of that was doing the setup for it, I think. And so then continue on to try and extract, you know, we'll get your money back, makes sense. Well, it does make sense. And I think one of the advantages they have with Lord of the Rings, um, more so than with Foundation, is that uh, mm -hmm. as, as much as I liked the Peter Jackson films, there were huge chunks of Tolkien that simply couldn't make it into the films. And with an extended uh, TV series, you can have Tom Bombadil, for example, who a lot of people... So you can, you can put yep. more Tolkien on screen that way. Um, yep. And I, 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 what, what bothers me is... And, and, and the thing is, Lord of the Rings pretty much has an endpoint. There's not a lot you can do. You, you, if, if you make... I don't know how many episodes they're supposed to be, but you cannot essentially renew Lord of the Rings indefinitely for 10 seasons with TV writers making up things that Tolkien never thought of. Um, with 
the Foundation series, I suspect that that's the case. There's simply not enough drama, and everybody's pointed this out. There's not enough actual on-screen drama in all of Asimov's stories and novellas uh, to, to make a series out of. There's a framework into which you can insert drama, and that's essentially what they're yeah. doing. But to some extent, yeah. the Foundation gives them the best of both worlds. You don't have to worry about a George R. R. Martin not finishing his novels, and then you have to go off on your own and not sure. imagine very well what uh, what he would imagine. So you don't have an unfinished series, uh, but you have, in the case of Foundation, a, a skeletal framework. In, in other words, it's uh, it's essentially, if you go story by story through Foundation, they're essentially a group of one-act plays that take place on a stage sure. with a single set. I mean, I was, uh, and, and there are some great stories like that. One of one of uh, the best time war stories ever written is Fritz Leiber's The Big Time. And Fritz Leiber's mm-hmm. The Big Time, even though it has everything you want in a time war story, takes place essentially in one room with people coming in and talking about what they've been doing and trying to change history and time travel. Um, and so, so that's kind of what I mean by sense of wonder. The sense of wonder doesn't need to derive from special effects. It needs to derive from that sense of suddenly discovering something you hadn't suspected, or suddenly sure. ideas opening up. You could yeah. so, so, so you, you could do, as I said, um, a, a good drama based. Actually, at one point, Neil Gaiman even said this. Uh, he may have said it in the essay, but that he thought it would make a great stage play to to do Fritz Leiber's The Big Time. Um, and okay. I think you can do that without enormously elaborate special effects. I've been reading reviews speaking of Neil Gaiman of London's West End theater production of The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which is, it's a fantasy, but it's a classic sense of wonder fantasy that doesn't require a lot of spectacle. No. Um, no. I mean, the, 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 well, that's, that's the problem with it, uh, arguably. I mean, I'm. Well, do I think this is true? What I was going to say was, do you think that visual science fiction, media science fiction, uh, film, television, requires more dramatic visual effects and expensive visual effects than fantasy. And my, my first thing was, that you're right, there, there are all kinds of stories. You could, we talked about Megan Lindholm, who's up yeah. for the, who's been getting a lot of achievement. And if you were to do Wizard of Pigeons, you wouldn't need a lot of expensive special effects. No, not at all. Um, but then there are, I guess there's always been equivalent science fiction stories. So I think that begins to disappear in a puff of kind of irrationality on my behalf. But I do think that, uh, there are many fine stories that can be done for not a lot, you know, for, with not a lot of effects that would be interesting to see done. And it's interesting they did Ocean at the End of Line as a play. I would be fascinated to see. I love the story. A, a, a local theater company here in Chicago a few years ago did uh, China Mievel's The City in the City uh, with a very low budget. And China was there, and he was, I think, mostly pleased by it. And then later there was, yeah. I think, a BBC version. Again, it's the idea that once you realize what the idea is, that's where the sense of wonder comes from. It's that moment mm-hmm. of recognition. Here's an example, yeah. cheapest example of a sense of wonder, and this is mostly among friends of mine who are not science fiction readers, was in the original Star Trek movie, which had some, some good special effects for the time of going through this space tunnel of some sort. Anyway, you find out that the superintelligence at the end of it, which is trying to... Yeah. Uh, do something terrible to the universe, which is called V'ger, is in fact Voyager 1. And that, for the audience who recognizes what yeah, Voyager yeah. 1 was, uh, there's a sudden connection between the science fiction world and our world. And that sense of sudden connection is what, um, in, in, in that movie, a very primer yeah. level, first grade level sense of wonder does. And I think that sense of recognition is what works yeah. um, in... In the best of Arthur C. Clarke, who is still one of the masters of a sense of wonder. Um, and the sense of wonder comes from that connection. It comes from the idea in fiction. Yeah. I think what movies try to do and what TV tries to do is to translate it entirely into special effects. Yeah. And sometimes with success, sometimes with not so much success. I mean, I, I, there, you might get a sense of wonder in the, let's say, the true. Stargate sequence from we 2001, work on a segue, Odyssey, yeah. but in fact, mostly it just looks like a trip. Well, yes, um, yes. You're still there? We were going to segue into talking about a Facebook post, post of okay. mine, but I wonder with dodging internet if that's something we could reasonably do. Quickly, we can certainly raise the idea and possibly talk about it uh, in, in another couple of weeks, uh, which was the idea of interrogating your own assumptions about empires, about politics, about gen- about everything, 
that goes into making your fiction. And is it necessary to do that? Well, is it a responsibility of an author, uh, author to do it these days? Well, I think, okay, I think it comes from the feeling that in, in 2021, writing science fiction and fantasy, no, there was always an element of it, but you almost have to, you're required to require to examine the uh, sociological underpinnings of the story you're telling. You, you know, it's not considered uh, acceptable, I, I would put forward, to right. elide the sociological implications of your work or to, to, to go past it. Now, some of the responses to the Facebook post, which maybe we'll come back to, argue that this has always been the case, and there's always been a case of interrogating the assumptions of the story. Sometimes the way the things that are interrogated are, are the, say, the science fiction assumptions, rather so the science assumptions or whatever, rather than necessarily the sociological ones. And that's the question. Now, can you can you do this with right. um, and, you know, and, and, in twenty twenty one? Can you tell stories that don't actually interrogate their own sociological underpinnings as a matter of course? Um, Hello, and I my my guess is the answer is yes and no. Is that a good one? There are stories there are stories that are in, in in which those underpinnings are clearly a central element of the story, and there are stories in which authors over time begin to interrogate their own assumptions. I mean, one of the fascinating things about Ursula Le Guin's career, for example, is that you know, she began with, um, with her Hainish stories. Uh, and as she grew and developed as a writer, she began more and more to question the whole idea of the ecumen, the whole idea of, yeah. of, of the Hainish worlds, that a lot of things that seemed to be just standard science fiction furniture to her when she began her career became interrogated later in her career. The same thing happened with Earthsea. She started out Earthsea yeah. clearly as a uh, a, a kind of, you know, not, not certainly not an off-the-shelf fantasy world because it was very well imagined. But how did Earthsea work politically and economically and socially? That became an issue in her later fiction, and she revisited yeah. those worlds. So, so, so I think authors have always been aware of this to the extent that their stories involved things like empires and economies and rulers and governments and so forth and so on. Not all stories center around those ideas. That's true. But we will come back to that because the interrogation of underpinning assumptions is an interesting topic to discuss. And we'll maybe talk about some of the responses. The other topic which uh, we... But I just, no, the other thing I, I thought we were going to mention tonight, and it just occurred to me this very moment, is that we are sometime around now entering our 13th year of podcasts. No, no, this, this is... Yes, yes, yes. I think that's right. If we're not already. And we started in 2010. So it's the 13th season in our 12th year or something, so, I think, like that. Something like we started that. March I don't know 2010. what it means. But anyway, it's it's amazing. I, we didn't think we were going to last six months. So Six months? I didn't think we'd get to a second, well, third episode at one point. Never, never mind have a, you know, six months where we did an episode a, a, a day well, okay. or whatever it was. Or three months we did an episode a day. Or, I mean, that's why we have this preposterous number of episodes now. It looks impressive as we push towards 600. But, you know, realistically, it's like we had one frantic period. Oh, that's what also we should talk about. The subject that we're likely to be talking about in coming weeks as well is well, the, we need you know, year in review, end of year, recommended reading, because we've only got a couple episodes to go till the hiatus, Gary. Oh, yeah. Where we give some, some people respite from us, mm -hmm. which will be good. But anyway, well, but, but, I think it's In fairness, people to... can take a respite from us simply. Well, yes, but we won't be forcing a podcast yes, into their feed. It probably is. So I guess then no, until, we won't. until next week. nevertheless. Weekend. It's been, I, how many episodes is this? Do you know? Okay, uh, this until next week, it's been, it's been a wonderful 12 years chatting with you. Let's hope we survive till next week. 566. 34 more episodes. We'll have something really special for people, which we have no clear at all. Anyway, until next week, then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. Thank you. Yes, it has.